Welcome to Working on Wellbeing, where we share stories of purpose-driven people doing good in the world. We'll meet change agents, entrepreneurs, students, teachers, and big thinkers to learn about their wow moment and how it got them to where they are today. This show is brought to you by Salary Finance, and I'm your host, Anita Ward, cultural anthropologist and chief development officer at Salary Finance. Welcome, everybody. Today, our show is live from the hill country of Texas, God's country, my favorite spot on earth, paradise, and with one of my favorite people on earth. I am so honored, Steve, to call you my friend, and I am so excited to share you with everybody. So welcome, Mr. Steve Bartlett. It's so great to have you today. Anita, it is so good to be with you. And I, I take great delight when I'm on the Zoom calls from Los Angeles and Atlanta and, and New York to always let people know that I'm in paradise at the Hill Country in Blanco County, Texas. And they get to be in wherever, you know, midtown Manhattan at best. Yeah. I am coming to the Hill Country at the beginning of October. So uh, I, I love it. That one day that's where I'm gonna be, Steve. So I will I will buy an extra I will I will I will store in an extra case of wine and a, a 10 pounds of barbecue for you. Sounds awesome. So I'm gonna admit though, I'm never quite sure what's proper protocol when it comes to, you know, addressing a former mayor, a former congressman, a CEO, a father, a leader. I mean, you're just kind of one of a kind. So so, hey, Steve. Hey, Steve will be fine. Hey, Steve. <laughs> but uh, indulge me a little bit because I do want to tell our listeners a bit about you because it's a pretty phenomenal story. I'm going to skip the beginning part because I want us to tell that story together. But at 34, Steve was elected as the representative from Texas's third congressional district and served in Congress for nine years. Correct. I know you were on the committee for House Banking Committee, the Education Committee, the Labor Committee, um, you were Deputy Whip. And in those nine years before you retired, uh, you authored or co-authored 20 pieces of legislation. 18 pieces of legislation that, that became law. I mean, people people, people author a lot of bills, but I, I'd had 18 that became law. Everything from East Texas Wilderness to the ADA to FHA mortgages. So there you go. And fair labor standards. And fair labor standards, exactly. Yeah. So it's a, uh, for me, that's especially looking through the lens of today, but it's, it was an outstanding example of public service. And then that wasn't enough. So in 1991, you found a new purpose, a renaissance of the city of Dallas, where you ran for mayor and were elected mayor. But from, I was in Texas then, Steve, and that city was in chaos. Crime was out of control. Race relations were crazy. City council was full of landmines. And I think maybe even like guns and fistfights, but. Fistfights, fistfights actually in the city council chambers between councilmen and sometimes between councilmen and the public, they would get out and they start beating each other up. It was, it was, it was chaos. It was chaos. When you were in your element, you look for situations like those, my friend, you're like, is there chaos and can I do this and can I fix it? So, and then after fixing Dallas, you're like, all right, enough. I'm going to transform financial services because Dallas wasn't big enough. And you became the president and CEO of the Financial Services Roundtable right before, I think Tim Pawlenty replaced you, right? In 2012 or 13. So 
that was a long gig, but I look back on it. And what's most significant to me as a reformed banker now is that those were recessionary years. And those were the years that made up the big short. So while I was causing all that trouble at Chase, you're trying to figure out what do we do <laughs> to manage through the dynamics. We had some good years. Those uh, the early part of the 20th of the 21st century for banking was where banks began to learn they could offer more to their customers than just a checking account and a and a home mortgage. And just the offerings of helping people finance their lives was just awesome. And then, of course, the middle part during the Great Recession, we discovered that there were some excesses in banking. And then I was part of the group that went in to try to clean up the mess there also. That was quite something. Yeah. Yeah. I started my banking career at Texas Commerce Bank. So I was, we had about 250, what were then called member banks. Uh, they weren't branches, they were charters on their own. And then worked, Chase acquired us and worked to consolidate that. So those were, you're right, those were good years about community banking and how could you emulate that. And some of that I'm seeing coming back a bit as people say, oh, there was something in that model. Maybe we should care about the community and the customer. But also one of the things that really surprises me is because I'm a, a big believer in giving back and being on boards. And I think that all of the examples I would give about you really reflect your purpose. So I know you're chairman of the Board of Respectability and National Association of Manufacturers and the Ebony and Essence and Jet all recognize you. The Anti-Defamation League, um, National Council of La Raza. I, I mean, you have been reading, been reading my my, my record. You want a really good laugh? C-SPAN has videos of you. From back, uh, there are 150 videos. So, yes, I went back and I saw my friend Steve on YouTube videos from C-SPAN when you were in Congress. It was great fun. I've had such a good time figuring it out. But I also know NF Foundation called you the best dad. So, for me, that's kind of the accolade. Best accolade out of all of that is best dad. And then just so the audience knows, you you and I met seven years ago when I was president at Operation Hope and you were on our board and uh, you leaned in heavily there. And whenever there was a huge task or something we need a wise counsel around, you were already there because you're dedicated to this model of financial inclusion and community uplift. So I do love me some Steve Bartlett. And I know I, I probably didn't do you justice, but I tried to think I probably missed something very significant, but I just want everybody to know how special you are. So thanks for indulging me. You 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 were so kind, but stop and lest we run out of time. <laughs> <laughs> we could do a whole hour just on your pedigree. But you know, Steve, I love stories. And I particularly like those stories that kind of resonate across decades. And I'll admit to you right now that uh, I have told your story about Little Red to so many people, and in including my son. Uh, and I'm hoping that because I think it it's a great place to start with the conversation. I was hoping maybe you would share that story with everybody today. Well, that's Little Red is where it all started for me. It, kind of at, at the tender age of four or four and a half, um, I discovered uh, the some basic truths in life, and I discovered the hard way. Uh, my family had moved from Los Angeles, bought a small little farm in, in Texas, knowing nothing about farming. And my dad brought home Little Red, a little red calf. Uh, that was like three days old and said, and he handed it to me, gave me the responsibility, said, son, you take care of him. Okay. So it was in the middle of winter and we had a norther come in a couple of nights later and a little red caught cold and then caught pneumonia 
And I went out twice a day. I cleaned out the stall from the from the poop that was that was pretty smelly and, and runny. I tried to feed Little Red some milk, and he couldn't quite eat. And uh, two days later, Little Red died. And it was obviously for a kid four and a half years old. That was you know that was traumatic. It was difficult. But I went out and dug the hole, dug the hole myself, and buried Little Red. Okay. That night at the dinner table, though, was where my learning experience came from. I was looking sad. And so my mother said, son, don't worry. You did everything you could to save Little Red. And my dad slammed his, his hand on the table. He said, no, you didn't. If you did done everything you could, Little Red would be alive. You could have brought Little Red into the kitchen, wrapped him in towels, slept with him to keep him warm. You could have taken and warmed the milk and put it in a little rag and, and held it into his mouth and got a little nutrition in it, called the veterinarian, got him an antibiotic shop. He said, no, son, if you're doing everything you could, Little Red would be alive. And I real, of course, my mother was in shock that my dad would say such a thing, but it was true. If you want to accomplish a mission, decide your mission. My mission in that case should have been to keep Little Red alive. And then you do everything you can to accomplish that purpose. And so that's helped me to kind of keep that in front of me as I've lived my life, the power of purpose. You set out your purpose, and that is keep it little red alive and then do what it takes. Yeah, those your dad's words echo in my mind. I, I don't know how long ago you shared that story with me. It's been a few years, but I often tell that, you know, to my son, like, you cannot accept defeat without thinking about this story, right? Or or success for that matter, without thinking about that story. Did you do everything you possibly could to make that happen. But, you know, you had a wonderful example of hard work in your dad and growing up on the farm. And I think that experience, too, may have contributed as well to your purpose early in life. And I, I don't, don't judge, Steve, but during COVID, probably like every other crazy person, I got a bunch of chickens. And it's a lot of work. And I can't imagine, you know, the responsibility of it's managing a project, it's managing a farm. And you did a lot of that. But I think maybe talk a little bit about how does how did that contribute to not just leaning in around everything, but setting goals and finding purpose and managing teams? So once I did, once I learned the power of purpose, which was the story of Little Red, I then kept that up for the next 10 years as I was growing up on the farm. And I learned that if you plant your crops right properly if you if you weed the garden properly if you feed feed the animals properly if, if you do everything right you're going to the outcome is going to be is going to be quite good you're you're going to collect the eggs and you're going to raise the animals and and everything will 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 do well uh, I put my, my first semester at college uh, was paid for at University of Texas of course I'll quickly say uh, was paid for my tuition was paid for by the pecans that I picked up from the creek bottoms. Uh, when I was uh, seven, eight, and nine years old, to put it in a savings account, and when I was ready to go to the uh, University of Texas, I had the tuition all saved up. Second semester, I had to get a job, and well, I had a job, but I had to get a, another job and pay for it. So, now your five twenty nine plan was pecans. <laughs> it was pecans, but th- I guess that's the point. Is you see what your purpose is. My my purpose in, in, on the farm was to was to raise good animals and raise good crops and all of that and. You know, I didn't know how to do it, but I learned with my with my dad, and then the outcome was quite good. So you take responsibility. I remember many's the day that I would go in, in the, and on a Saturday morning and sort of kick my brothers and sisters out from out from where they were sitting watching cartoons, which used to just drive me crazy. Said, hey, get get out of here! We got some work. We got to, we got fence to mend. We've got cattle to take care of. <laughs> 
And then, of course, when I turned when I turned 14, I was able to transfer that to the big city. My dad, unfortunately, lost his job in the in the in the small town we were close to. And of course, the jobs then as now are in the city. So we moved to Dallas, where uh, I was not unhappy at all. I love the farm. But in Dallas, they had Republicans and girls. And we didn't have either of those two things in, on the farm. So and then I started into politics and met my wife and and uh, uh, fell in love and subsequently got married. There was a, um, uh, you know, I'm a political junk junkie and you're a master politician, so we, we get along so well. But your road to being a politician actually started with a teacher, I think, who brought you Newsweek articles, right? right. And you're like, you got obsessed with it. And then another one whose name was like Abraham Lincoln. Like, how is that not inspirational? <laughs> you had some influences early on that inspired you, I think, or at least nurtured that political aspiration. In the sixth grade. So I learned lessons as, well, as I went along. So you're looking for the purpose and then keeping your eyes and mind open to the lessons on how to get there. So I was on the farm. Uh, so my sixth grade uh, social sciences teacher kept me in after class one day and said, you seem to be interested in world events. I said, yes. She said, what do you, what, what magazines do you read at home? I said, well, boys life and the farm journal. <laughs> she said, okay. She tried to hide, hide, a smile, hide the smile. And she said, if I bring you my week old copy of Newsweek every week, would you read it? I read it cover to cover. I just absorbed it is the knowledge. And I learned that politics, two things. One is that politics are, are public policy all the laws are made by people in politics, and it's a kind of a continuous, never-ending story. What happens next week is dependent on what happens this week, and what will happen the following week is dependent on next week. And so you can actually track these. And then the other thing I discovered is that the people who write the laws, this is wait for the aha moment, are the people who get elected. And if you're not elected, you're just another, another somebody with an opinion. And, you know. Thanks for your opinion. So anyway, so I learned those two things. And that and that is the politics really matters. It decides everything that we do. I remember when the county agent came out to our farm once and and demanded that we my dad that he turn over his records for the amount of, sh of, of wool that we sheared from our sheep. And I remember thinking that's a pretty stupid law, but somebody had passed the law. And so then we had to do it. Uh, to, to what end? Just just to gather the data? Yeah, pardon me. I, I'm. I'm still a Republican at heart, although I'm a never Trump Republican. It's just because the government likes to know, <laughs> likes to do stuff. So they want to know how much wool we had. That's crazy. I'm sorry. But politics matters. The, you know, and, and the people that, made, that make the laws are in politics. Yeah. And you, I think you started or, or became a leader in your young Republican club. It, or you were still in high school, I think, at the time, right? Yeah, I was living in. A, we moved to Dallas, and we're 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 we're, we're poor folks, if, if you might. Not not dirt poor, but we're, we weren't rolling. Um, and so we lived in quote the the wrong part of town. You know, I I thought it was okay, but you know, it was in the in the 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 other side of the river, as they, as they say. And uh, so I've adopted the Barry Goldwater conservative theory of capitalism and strong national security and low taxes and such. And the, the day that the Republicans nominated Barry Goldwater for president, I was 14 years old. I called up the local Republican headquarters and told them I wanted to join a Republican club. Uh, whoever, the lady on the phone said, we don't have a Republican club in your part of town and hung up. So the next day I called back and I said, well, we, we do have a young Republican club now. I have five members. Is that enough? And she said, no, that's not enough. Hung up again. 
So it, it, the next call took me three days. I called back and said, I have 42 members now in my Young Republican Club, and we have locations for 100 Go Water Yard signs. And she said, uh, just a moment. I think you now have the you now have the largest Young Republican Club in Dallas County. Wow. <laughs> but again, it's the same thing. So if you set out with the purpose of doing my part to elect Barry Goldwater at age 14, you have to have other people involved. You get people involved on a mission, and then they help to accomplish the mission. There's no shortcut to it, uh, and you can't let somebody tell you you can't do it. Um, and they, by the way, they made me president of the county the following year. So uh, off, off to the races, as they say. You always used to tell me that, you know, one person can make a difference. And if they're purpose-driven, that one person taking initiative really can drive outcomes, whether you're talking about underserved communities or, you know, building a, a club. And I often forget that, Steve, because we 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 get caught up thinking, I'm just one person. What am I going to do? How am I going to, you know, the, the, the goal seems so overwhelming, but somehow you've been able to just put your head down. How much of that is just driven, as you say, from those early days and that purpose and, you know, setting that goal and saying, I know the consequences, I know where I want to be, and I know I can make a difference along the way. It's all a matter of connecting the dots. So you, you, you understand that if you once, you once you set your purpose, then you say, how do I achieve the purpose? And it takes other people. You can't do it on your own. And, you, and then you build I guess in politics, you'd call it a coalition, you'd build a coalition. When I announced for the Dallas City Council, I remember I'd been collecting, since college, I'd been collecting names and uh, and phone numbers and addresses of people I'd meet to develop a relationship with. Uh, and so at age 29, when I announced for the City Council, I discovered I had 2,172 names in a shoebox on index called alphabetized. And I thought, well, heck, these are 2,000 people that I know. And, and we have, well, not voters, supporters, people that I have a relationship with that that are likely to support me. So I sent each one on, my, on the day I announced, I sent all of them, each one of them a letter. Uh, I had people to help address the envelope, sent everybody a letter and said, I'm running for the city council. I know that we're good friends. Uh, uh, I hope you can help me. And I mean, literally, I don't think they all signed up, but most of them signed up and, off, and offered to help. So I didn't keep that shoebox in order to run for the Dallas City Council. I kept the shoebox knowing that in order to accomplish anything in politics, you had to have friends and supporters. And, and then you pull out the shoebox and you ask them. I think your greatest supporter and maybe your most important coalition with your wife, Gail. And that, that was an early one, too, because I mean, I'm not going to age you because you're so young, but. I think you might have been married maybe 50 or so years now, right? 52 years, yeah. Happily married for 52 years. Okay, we've been happily married for 51 years. That's a joke. That's a joke, Gail, if you're listening. If you're listening. <laughs> but uh, but you, what happens? Do you end up with a shared purpose then, Steve? Or Yes. So that was one of the joys of our career together is that we both had the shared purpose of using politics to make a difference to help people in their lives. So we we both had that shared purpose. I met her at a Young Republican bake sale. She had been up all night and most of the afternoon the day before baking cakes to raise money for her Young Republican Club, which was on the right side of the river. And so I showed up because I was the county president. I showed up uh, to kind of wish them well and ask them for some, for some of the money for the county, right? And well, let's just say the conversation did not go well. <laughs> so I promptly fell in love with her. Okay. And turned to my best friend and said, I think I'm going to marry that girl. And my best friend said, yeah, I thought you thought you would. 
And I called her that afternoon and asked her for a date, and the rest is history. She fell in love with me two weeks later, so it, 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 it all worked out. <laughs> I, I love that. But it is a shared I, – when I do a lot of mentoring, and it's now evolved into, like, marriage counseling, in, informal – and one of the things I tell young people, whether they're being married, getting married or not, but is that that shared purpose of a couple, you have to figure out what as a couple your purpose is and then do it together. And it's just such a joy when you have a life partner to, to trying to accomplish the same same thing. Yep. So when you decided you were going to enter the congressional race, how did that happen? And how did, you know, Gail weigh in around that too? Oh, she did. Uh, she, she, she weighed in. Let's, let's go do it. It wasn't, wasn't easy. Um, when I ran for the city council, I remember there was a special election. And so I was griping about the other candidates and she literally, you know, slammed her, her hand like my dad used to do on the kitchen table and said, well, if you're, if you don't like it, why don't you run yourself? And I said, okay, I think I will. And I went out and announced that day and boy, was she surprised. <laughs> But when we ran for the count, the city count, the congressional race was hard. It was the most joyous time of our married life together. I hit the campaign trail every morning at 7 a.m., okay? And she would she went to work to support the family during that time. And so she would then get off work at 5 o'clock, and she would meet me at our first campaign coffee at 6 p.m., and we would campaign together from 6 to, to 9.30. After 9.30, nobody wants to talk to you, Right. And then we literally, we had picked out the drive-through, fast food drive-throughs in, in, in the area that we could still sneak in and get get some dinner through the drive-through and eat it in the car on the way, on the way home. Because in politics, you don't take time to eat. You, yeah, you're busy shaking hands. We did that for 21 months, 21 months. And this lady is a champ. I mean, we had all kinds of ups and downs and redistricting and changing things around. And she never... Uh, she she would tell you today that that was the happiest time of her life because it was our happiest time of of married life. Is it uh, a mythology? I think I heard it somewhere during my hope days that Gail told you you were a better politician than businessman. <laughs> yes. So is that true? After, no, it's true. I went to. I, I thought I was so smart. I did the did the city council thing and then the congressional thing and then the mayor's thing. I, you know, I was, I was, I was on top of the world. I was successful. I thought after the mayor's thing, I said, okay, now I'm going to, I'm going to run a big business. I'm going to, I had owned a small manufacturing company. I'm going to double its size and buy another one. And it didn't, it did not go well. Okay. So after about a year, I'm sitting at the table and I remember she looked at me and she said, she knew it wasn't going well because I shared everything with her. And she said, how do you think it's going? This, this manufacturing thing. I said, I got defensive as husbands tend to do. I said, oh, fine. It's going fine. It's going fine. She said, oh, well. I, and then I said, why do you ask? She said, well, I guess it is going fine. You know, you're the best politician I have ever seen anywhere. And you're an okay businessman. I said, what do you mean by that? And you know what she said? She said, oh, you're a smart boy. You'll figure it out. <laughs> And so I took my business, I sold my manufacturing company, I took my business acumen, whatever it was, and I married it with politics and went and became CEO of the Financial Services Roundtable. And then she joined me in Washington for that. But she didn't tell me what to do, but she put that little clue down as to what, yeah, as to what what I ought to do. And it was it was a big, big success. But it was she was the one that figured it out. And then she, rather than tell me, she gave me a chance to figure it out for myself. I love that. It's so smart to do it that way. She should be a consultant in her next life, right? Oh, and I think about you going into Congress and you were so young, right? What was, you know, what were those 
big challenges, particularly coming in young. And, you know, I think the challenges maybe are different today. There just doesn't seem to be that same level of genteel respect, if you will. But what were your challenges at at 34 and coming in and saying, I'm going to change the world and one person can make a difference. And, 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 and I did with, you had a lot of help, but it was, I'd set up my purposes. So I went and I interviewed at that time, there wasn't this, all this anger. And so people did, did work for, to achieve the, what they wanted to achieve. And we had tough times. It wasn't, it wasn't milk toast. I mean, there was some, some brutal times. I, so I, I remember the first floor fight where I offered an amendment on the, on the house floor to a major piece of legislation. It was a major amendment that, uh, and I was a young Republican offering this amendment and all of the senior Democrats thought it was the worst thing they'd ever, ever seen. And they took me on and I had a, uh, um, holding uh, holding the the floor uh, in a in a debate for 6 hours called two, called two roll call up against Chuck Schumer by the way he was the leader of the other side and i won that i wanted on they, they made me do two roll calls and i won both roll calls by like like a margin of like 10 something like that and passed the bill and let me tell you it was a it was a new and what it was 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 to take the money that had been allocated for a huge amount of money that had been allocated to build new public housing, like 2,000 units, and instead take it and repair the existing public housing that were dilapidated and dangerous for people to live in, and we and to repair 100,000 units. So it's one of those that I was I was on the side of the angels, but the politics politicians like to build a new public housing and put their name on it and make a big speech. So. Yeah, big ribbons, ribbons. Anyway, so I remember I was on the House floor for six for six hours. It wasn't it wasn't easy. So, so when I first got to Congress, I knew the areas I wanted: housing, banking, education, labor. And so I went and I interviewed members of Congress that had been there for a while and been successful, and asked them what was their what they thought I should do. And there were two groups. One of them said, "Don't do anything. Just get your newsletters out and run for reelection." When 20 years from now, when you're committee chairman, you can you can do, legislate. The other half, though, said you can do anything you want to. And I realized the ones that said you can do anything you want to and accomplish something were the ones that when they got they they were doing that as committee chairman. So I wrote down I wrote down a set of rules. And that is and I put them I actually put them up on my wall and gave them out to all my staff, which is get this is for what those senior members told me. Get there early. Every markup we ever had, I always showed up 15 minutes early. OK. And I was the I was there before the staff got there in many cases, and so other members of the committee would come and ask me what was going on when they came in late. <laughs> Get there early, stay late, do your homework. No, I mean the deal is with that six hours. Know more about the subject than anyone else. Follow the rules, including the rules of of courtesy and respect, and then never give up. Oh, I love those rules. So. I followed that, and as you know, and those were those were tough times. At that, but they don't have what we have now, which is all the animosity and the anger and the finger pointing and the it's all politics, not all, but large amounts of it are just simply politics instead of substance, and that's the shame. It's a shame now. There was a piece, I think it was an amendment to the FHA interest rates. You know, I've been in financial services and at salary finance, we're a lender. So when we talk about where do you set interest rates and how do you make them inclusive, wasn't that another amendment that you felt like fell for? I found, you know, so you look for places where you have some expertise and you know something and the facts are on your side, even though the politics are other. People don't remember, but prior to my amendment in 1983, 
the interest rate for FHA mortgages were set by administrative fiat by the, by the Secretary of HUD, which means that if he got it a little bit too high, people would pay more than they, than they ought to. If he got it a little too low, they couldn't get the mortgage, right? I mean, it's just, it was crazy. Yeah, it's so, it's so obvious, right? And what bothered me a little bit, but a, little, a lot, was that everybody knew, not everybody, but most members of Congress kind of knew that, but they didn't want to be a they didn't want to be accused of letting the big old bankers set the interest rates. Of course, the bankers don't set it either. It's the, the market, right? So I brought an amendment and passed it. Uh, Henry B. Gonzalez, uh, rest in peace. Uh, he went to the House floor for the following six weeks, every night in special order, and called me every name he could think of. The first couple of nights he did it, of course, I watched on C-SPAN. I wanted, I got up and put on my tie, and I was going to go down and debate him about whether I was a bad guy, was basically the, to- the topic. And my staff talked me out of it. They said, Congressman, you won. <laughs> you won the war, okay? You don't have to go back into battle. And second is nobody's going to watch him anyway, right? <laughs> and so he was there He was there every night when we were in session for six weeks, and nobody said a word. So, And, of course, I got the interest rate. So the result, the, the end of that story was like 10 months later, I'm at this dinner party. I'm the speaker for some big group, and I'm sitting next to the wife of the, of the chairman of the group. And uh, and I said, well, so what's new in your life? She said, oh, my husband and I just bought a house. I thought I'd never be able to get a house. It's just so wonderful. I love the house. I said, well, how'd that work? She said, well, two years ago, we bought a house that I loved and I really wanted. And we got a contract and we got a mortgage and we get up to closing and the interest rates had shifted. OK, and something about the secretary of HUD had not shifted with them. And so we couldn't afford the mortgage. And so we lost the house and I was crushed. And I said, what happened this time? She said, well, the same thing happened, except we got up to closing and the interest rates had shifted, but somebody changed the law to allow us to buy the house. <laughs> I said, honest to goodness, it was like, it was like God was speaking to me saying, thank you. But I kept my cool. I didn't say, I said, really, that's neat that somebody would do that. Yeah, that's amazing. I love it when people come back and, you know, that's the story because that's that that one person who can make a difference. Right. So and and I think about it, you're a freshman congressman. I mean, the stories that surround that, I'm sure we could like go for that case of wine we just talked about and tell all the stories on how did you actually make that happen? But Steve, you know, I'm always curious because when I think about interest rates, I often think about FICO scores too. And you know, my soapbox, I really feel like credit scoring needs reform. And I'm wondering, you know, what are your thoughts around this? I I struggle, especially coming out of that world of community banking and then the nonprofit sector and now salary finance. And we're all trying to figure out how do you make more inclusive lending and FICO score um, sometimes gets in the way. Well, first of all, the good news, uh, I, I, I keep up with it and I'm an observer. My view, my perception is the credit bureaus in the last three to four years have gotten a lot better. They, they're starting to use technology for them instead of against them. You can, you can call and get right through to somebody. They explain it. They also are doing a much better job explaining what makes a good, what goes into a credit score. So, and, and now, and somebody passed the law. It wasn't me, but somebody passed a law that said that the credit bureaus have to give you a, a free credit report once a year. Uh, and if, since there are three of them, you can get three a year. And they also make it affordable. If it's not free, you know, the bank will pay will pay for it. So and now people are have, have realized that they can that everything depends on your credit score. And now they have the financial literacy, the tools to know what goes into your credit score. 
and it explodes a lot of the of the myths. So I think it's gotten better. I think it can get better with some competition. I think competition will improve it. The things that you're doing at your company, uh, shelter finance, right? Uh, salary, salary finance. Salary finance. So an educated consumer becomes a powerful consumer as you do th- as you do that as you educate the consumers, then they can provide a better company. financial literacy is everything in my opinion. I agree. And, and access to affordable capital. So I've shared before, I, I grew up a homeless kid and my parents didn't have access to capital. We bounced around on couches, but the check cashing thing was Binion's Big Wheel in Vegas, right? And so I know that my parents could have found financial footing if they could access it. But that whole, you know, you get caught up in those payday schemes, payday lender schemes. And, and while I recognize there's a role to be played there, I really think that the reform that we're looking at or should be looking at now around credit scores and affordable credit and inclusive capital and inclusive capitalism and inclusive lending. I think that 2020 just put a light on that in terms of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I'm more optimistic than I have been in years that we'll be able to address that. Yes, we made some good, some good, some positive steps in the last three years. I think we clearly have a long ways, a long ways to go. Uh, but the goal is to give people better options, and to do that, you have to give them knowledge. Yes, that's right. Financial literacy, so that they understand what what's. It's amazing how many people don't either don't know how to do a budget, or they don't think it's important. Uh, I mean, it's just it's just staggering. Yeah, and it goes even beyond the basics. I I was on a call with somebody from Chase the other day and shared that. The first time I got options, Steve, I was like 28 years old. I had a PhD and I had no idea what the heck was an option and why were they giving them to me and what did it mean? So even that literacy has to continue on. But let's go back to kind of the fun stuff because, you know, I lived in Texas for a long time. I have this cup that my son bought me that says chaos coordinator. (laughs) And I have to tell you, I feel like that's you, you know. But so can we talk a little bit about the whole experience in Dallas? Because that truly was the Wild West. And I, I love the idea of you coming in and how the heck did you do that? And because Dallas is beautiful now. I mean, I lived in Houston, but, you know, I'll accept Dallas for a bit. <laughs> well, again, the purpose, you establish what the purpose is, figure out the big issues. Uh, and that's why I ran for the, for the mayors is because Dallas, we hate to admit it now, but Dallas was failing badly. I mean, people would, we, we were on, as they say, we were on the road to Detroit and God bless Detroit, they're doing a lot better. But it was, uh, so everything had gone wrong. Um, there, there, you know, every everything had gone wrong. Civil rights, uh, uh, the anger, uh, economy. I, when I got in, the the Chamber of Commerce came to see me, and I said, "Well, okay, first let's focus on the positive. That's always a nice place to start. So, bring me a list of the employers that have moved into downtown Dallas in the last ten years." And we already had the list of those. There wasn't a list. We had there were one hundred and twenty thousand people or jobs that had left downtown Dallas in ten years. 120,000. So I said, bring, bring a list of the employees that moved in and let's ask them why they moved in. Then we'll duplicate that for everybody else. A week later, two weeks later, they came back and said, Mayor, it's worse than you thought. I said, okay, what is it? He said, we can't find a single employer that has moved into downtown during the last 10 years. Not one. Wow. That is worse than I thought. Yeah. Well, so I sent everybody back to their offices, both city hall and, and chamber. And I said, the next two weeks, clearly what we're doing isn't helping. 
So stop everything you're doing and assign everybody to find whatever list they want to find and cold call anywhere they want to cold call, except for the immediate suburbs of Dallas, because we didn't want to steal from our neighbors. Okay. They can find any list. They, they can call from the Los Angeles Yellow Pages, which actually one, one guy did. Okay. And you just call and say, we're looking for people to move to downtown Dallas. Would you like to talk? Two weeks later, they came back and they had found someone. Okay. It was a five-person chiropractor, and they signed a lease on Main Street. We declared it National Chiropractors Week for Dallas. We put up banners on Main Street, and I went over as mayor and on on the 6 o'clock news got a shoulder massage. (laughs) (laughs) And as I was leaving, the chiropractor said, Mayor, this is just great, but do you treat all of your new employers like this? I said, well, so far, you're it. (laughs) Anyway, so so we said, okay, so we're going to change, we're going to change what we're doing to attract business to downtown and stay with it until we get it. And that's and so the rest is history. So yeah. We started moving in. At one point we had one uh four hundred employee call center that had signed a lease offer on a downtown Dallas building. The landlord in Chicago turned it down. I called the landlord in Chicago, I won't cite his name, and said, what are you doing? There's, this is like the only possible tenant you'll ever have. He said, I'd rather have it empty. I said, well, you make your point very clearly. I hung up the phone and called Trammell Crow and said, we've got 400 employees. They've signed a lease. If you will take this lease and white out this other developer's name and put your name in it and sign it, you got the deal. And they did it. By like they say <laughs> anyway, so you do whatever it takes to bring employers back in, and so we it, now downtown Dallas, as you know, is just booming. But you had to do everything at everything at once, and then second is we had to get the city council and the city governments kind of under control. That doesn't mean you don't have disagreements, but I, I developed what I call the peace plan, which is a nice political term, and that was that we're gonna we're gonna peacefully argue our differences instead of violently. And everybody signed up. I mean, how could you be against it? Could you please go to D.C. right now and get a peace plan? I mean, and then the third is we really had a crisis in violent crime. I mean, we had we had an increase in violent. I hate to remember this. Dallas had an increase in violent crime in every single category. Murder, rape, robbery, aggravated assault every month for 10 years. We had not missed a month and not not missed a category. And so we set out to say, okay. Where's the crime happening? Who's doing it? What can we do? And the other deal that we did was that we didn't we didn't do the the bust heads thing. Okay, so the police chief, thank goodness, we had a new police chief, and he just read the riot act to the troops and said, "When you you're going to make arrest, felony arrest, and you're going to do so courteously, and you're going to say, Mister Johnson and Miss Smith, and you're going to say, I'm now going to take you into custody. So, is there anything you want to tell me?" and and then you're going to courteously answer. And if we get any complaints about you, we're going to throw the book book at you. And so we, and so that, so violent crime stopped, started down five months later and went down every single month that I was mayor. And then for five months after I left and it's still down much less than it was, although it's peaked up now. And with It's a different city. It's amazing. In a short time. But it wasn't, it wasn't really that complicated or that hard. It was just a matter of focusing on what's important and then, Taking it off one at a time. Yeah, back to your purpose and goals, right? And did you do the same for the financial services roundtable? Because that was kind of a mess too at the yeah, time, wasn't it? It was, bless, bless their hearts. So banks had tried for 10 years to do what's called financial services reform, which is essentially to let them finance their customers, easy way of putting it. But there, there's way too many rules and regulations. And so 
it took, you know, it, it's amazing how fast it happened. It took took six six months to pass the uh, the modernization legislation, which allowed then banks to serve their customers better. Now, having said that, we discovered in the Great Recession that some of the banks, not the major banks, but some of the outlier banks, uh, didn't do well with their newfound freedom. And then we had to go back and make those corrections. But I'd still rather have done that than have banks still, you know, you remember the old, what was a banker's rule in in by nine? Out by five. Out by, well, it was, I think it was in by nine, out by three and golf course by four or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but that, and that changed dramatically. So our banking system now is quite robust and has, once the Dodd-Frank reforms came in that said, and oh, by the way, you have to treat your customer right. That's a novel thought then, uh, you know, we've got the most robust and helpful finance system in the in the world. Yeah, and I like that we continue to refine CRA and we continue to look at it through a socioeconomic lens and, and layer in much more than just, you know, historic lending data. So I, I agree. It's a, a lot different from when I started as a banker, for sure. You know, Steve, there's a part you were talking about uh, a minute ago about education and financial literacy, again, kind of tying back into this, but you work with a pretty amazing company called EverFi. And I wondered if if just you might share some of that because I think they're doing amazing work in the content and learning space as well. Yeah, they are. What, what they do is they use Operation Hope uses the, uses the people to do counseling and good. So Everify has done, it takes the same content, the same lessons, the same goal, and that is to, to give people the knowledge that will allow them to control their financial lives. Uh, so Everify partners with the usually the banks, but now other companies like Google and Hilton and Walmart and others. And what they do is they take technology and they put the technology into the classroom in easy bite-sized pieces. The core content is a six-week course uh, that, that really gives a full knowledge of they, they teach things that the teachers aren't able to teach because they don't have their own knowledge base and they don't have a curriculum and then the using technology they do it do it online the students take the course and then they have to take a test to go on to the next level and if they don't pass the test they go back to the beginning and take and, and take the course again and then have to take another kid and then they get grades for it so it's a it's astounding so everfi is in forty thousand school districts in the country yeah it's amazing. It is. It is astounding, and there. It's a scale. It's a scalability issue, though, right? So, for me, it's how do you how do you do that? If you can, technology is the key there. As much as I love that individual human interaction, I'm, I'm an anthropologist, right? But I'm also a technologist that says the only way we're going to get empower financial empowerment at scale is with digital technologies. Yeah, and, and Everfi Everfi takes this takes it to scale. And uh, it really changes. I've met a lot of the students and it just changes their lives because suddenly they understand they really they really do have the power of their finances at their fingertips. Yeah. And then um, you have come back and now you're on boards and enjoying a bit of your life. Where where do you see financial services going next? Or is there a, a second mountain or a third mountain or a fourth mountain that you're hoping that, you know, you're going to climb now to and another big mess that you want to clean up and I vote to send you back to DC myself and I'll be there to support you. But thanks. But there's only one vote in that race and that's my wife's and she's already asked her vote. 
Oh, I, I love corporate boards. I, I'm doing a lot of private boards now. I'm doing some public boards, but I'm doing a lot of private boards. Uh, I've learned that I have uh, uh, the ability to offer uh, advice, if you will. So I call it strategic advice, strategic advice. I don't, I don't, I'm not required to go in and do it anymore, but to say this is, so a lot of times I get an assignment from a company that says, we want you to, to help us fix this particular problem. When I'm working with one with Medicaid right now, I want you to fix this problem. So I say, well, okay, gosh, you know, when do you want me to show up for work? Say, oh, we don't want you to work. We have people who will work. We want you to come in and tell our people how to do it and what their goal ought to be. And then a week later, come back and ask them how they did it. Uh, and so that's, that's really, that's really kind of fun. That's a little different for you instead of rolling up your sleeves. Now I started off by saying, I watched a bunch of C-SPAN videos and, you know, dug a little bit deeper. And I think I could create a book now of Steve Bartlett philosophies. So I thought it might be kind of fun if I just say, okay, you said this, and maybe you just get a little color commentary around it. It would be kind of, I think a little bit of fun. So bear with me. Fire away, baby. I can't wait to hear what I said. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I thought they were pretty great. So you said companies that treat their employees better do better on the bottom line and that companies cannot be successful unless they pay attention to their employees. And I think first is a realization that stakeholders include the workers of the company. Oh, wow. That's, I did say that. I think that's, so, so it's now, uh, you know, we're all students of Milton Friedman and, and that was right. You know, the shareholders, that's true. Shareholders are a very important stakeholder because they put up the capital, but the workers, the employees put up the labor and the brains and the ingenuity. So if you treat, you should treat your shareholders, right? Because that helps to produce success, but you also have to, should treat your employees, right? And your customers, if you don't treat your customers, right, you're dead meat. I won't mention any, any negative names of companies that didn't, but think of the successful companies that you know, a- Apple, and one of their successes is they treat our Walmart now. Do you remember the, the old Walmart, bless their hearts, that were not, didn't get this memo? Okay. They were always in trouble. And then the new blue leadership came in, by the way, with my namesake, Dan, Dan Bart- Bartlett, who's the one of the EVPs there. Uh, they came in, they said, wait a minute. Why don't we focus on our customers and our employees and our communities and our shareholders and think, look at how much better Walmart is doing for all of those groups. So it is stakeholder engagement as of which shareholders are a big stakeholder that has replaced the pure percentage profits. You know, can you get make a penny more in earnings this quarter than we did last quarter? You sound like another great Texan there, by the way, um, you know, Mr. Herb Kelleher, too. So I think they, you know, Southwest showed this so well. You know that Herb Kelleher would consistently, when asked what was the secret of your success at Southwest, he said, treated our employees right. He said, well, okay, what? And said, people say, what else? He said, nope, there is no what else. That's it. Now, I think there is some what else, but Herb didn't think so. He said, treat your employees right. And it, well, his point is, if I treat my employees right, they will treat my customers right. And if we, they treat my customers right, that'll treat the shareholders. A win. Right. That's right. Now, you said as a corollary to that concept that the reporting institutions like the Securities and Exchange Commission should actually incorporate human resource measurements into their reporting and that CEOs should be paid in direct correlation to how the company treats employees. That's pretty revolutionary thought there, Mr. Bartlett. Shouldn't be the only factor, but it should be a factor. So the the shareholders need some better insight 
into how the company is treating their employees, okay? So reporting, if you will. The board, and I've been on eight boards now, something like that, the board needs to know how how they're treating their employees. And I I can tell you that with few exceptions, the latest being the one I've been on uh, the last uh, eight years is Aries, most most board of directors don't know don't know or have any way to find out or measure how the, the company's treating employees because it's sort of kept from them. So I think it ought to be brought out into the into the light, put a spotlight on it, have measurements. So here's one of the little appreciated facts of American life. You and I can find out how companies treat their employees. Just subscribe to Glassdoor and go on and the employees will tell you. There are two big companies in Dallas, huge, huge companies. In Dallas, in the same geography, in the same industry, okay, and so I had a I had a little skirmish with one of them. So I thought, okay, let me look at Glassdoor. Oh my gosh, the, the employees just roasted them over the coals. One of the the worst quote I saw was, "Yeah, they get us together in these meetings and they pray for us, pray for us first, and then they screw us right after that." Right? That was from the employee. The other company, okay, same industry and same city, okay. The employees just raved about it. Finest place I've ever worked. I would never work anywhere else. And then they would t- take it to the customer and say, and you know, what's even better is they treat, they ask us to treat our customers right so we can actually help people. What a novel idea. A novel idea. And of course, the one that treats your employees badly under according to Glassdoor is not doing well. And the one that treats your employees well under Glassdoor is doing quite well. Off camera, I'll tell you who it is. I will. I'm, you know, I'm calling you. But um I think it would be fascinating. You talk about being on the board of Aries that, you know, Michael Arrogate is so innovative anyway, but looking at that portfolio through the lens of employee satisfaction or, you know, put those human pieces on uh, as a, a part of the valuation of the portfolio would be really quite fascinating. And and I think revolutionary, but you got a CEO like that, then there's a good chance you could make that happen. So I love that. Thank you for that call, call, Mike. I've suggested that a time or two. I think he actually does that. I don't know that he shares. He does. He does share. He does share with the board the measurements of the direct employees. So, but you know, he hasn't quite shared with us how the how their portfolio companies are treating their employees. But it shows up in the results. You know, you know, at the Aries board. We talk about individual portfolio names and say, well, what are they doing this? Why did they do that? How are they doing that? And so it, come, it comes up. It comes up. Arrogetti is, is the, easily the smartest businessman I've ever, ever met. And, and one of the kindest people I know. And ethical. Oh, gee. So I was just on a town hall, I was just on a town hall meeting uh, with him in which he rolled out their next step for diversity and inclusion. It is specific. It is large. It is it is impactful, and they and it is measurable. And Arrogetti, you know, they measured a lot of different set of factors. And Arrogetti said, with the ones that didn't turn out, it didn't look so good. He would start by saying, "Now listen, this one doesn't look so good, okay? And we're going to correct it. Uh, but uh, I just want you to know that it doesn't look so good." Wow, I love him. He's an authentic leader for sure. One of the other things you said that I love is leaders should do a lot more listening and a lot less talking. That is that is true. That's sometimes hard for me, by the way. But. Me too. I'm Italian. I'm going to blame it on being an Italian. And that you should respect people, especially those you may not agree with. And I thought that, you know, that's a great lesson, not just for us as leaders, but I think a great lesson for today. One of the one of the one of the pieces of the legislation that I that I passed, I had passed it in the House, 
And it was a major deal. Again, it was about public housing, but it was a major. I don't know if you've noticed, most people haven't, if you're not in the housing, public housing business, is that the public housing in this country today is no longer largely dilapidated. You know, 20 years from now, it was so, it was so bad that the tenants would live in the, in the backseat of their car before they would live in that apartment. Yeah, now, now they're largely re- repaired and habitable. And not. Well, one of the reasons is, is because we changed the format, funding formula, spent this, this is the, this is the, makes you cry and then left. We spent the same amount of money, but we allocated it on a formula of who needs the repairs instead of who's got the political skin. Okay. And that was a major amendment that I passed. I passed it over rest in peace, Henry Gonzalez's objections, vocal objections uh, in committee. Um, I had to bring in the president of the San Antonio housing authority, you know, to help Henry see the, see the light or at least let it go through. Well, they got to the conference committee and that provision was knocked out, right? So, of course, I have friends everywhere. So I went, I asked the chairman, respectful, Mr. Chairman, I, I'd like to come see you. When would a good time be? He said, well, come right now. I did. And of course, he had done it. He was the one that killed that provision. And I went and said, Mr. Chairman, um, you know, I've always respected you. I've always respected you. And I, I know that we've disagreed on things, but you've always been fair. He said, yes. What's your point? I said, I'm really disappointed because that provision that passed through your committee, and I remember you didn't like it, you allowed it to be, t- be taken out of the conference report. And he said, oh, well, I did. And then he turned to his staff and he got him Jerry, and he blamed on Jerry. He said, Jerry, you, Mr. Bartlett is right. I'm a fair man. Put it back in. Wow, that's amazing. I love that. And then lastly, Steve, you said life is a joy. And I think anybody like you that's purpose-driven and and full of love and full of kindness, I deeply appreciate. And if you don't mind, I'm going to, I wrote those down when you said them, I'm going to leave today with everybody on, in, on their minds about what your purpose blueprint was. At least that's what I'm going to call what you did in Congress, but get there early and I hope I got these right. Get there early and stay late, do your homework know more about the subject than anybody else, be the smartest kid in the room, follow the rules, especially or including at least courtesy, civility, decency, and respect, and never, ever, 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 ever give up. So I would say that if you're going to lead a purpose-filled life, um, you're a shining example of that. And I really appreciate you spending so much time with us today and telling your story and and actually more about your servant leadership. Thank you for making the world a better place for all of us. Thanks, you're, Steve. You're the, you're the best, Anita. Thank you. Keep up the good work yourself. Thank you. Thanks. All right. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of Working on Wellbeing, brought to you by Salary Finance. I'm Anita Ward. At Salary Finance, our mission is to improve the financial health of working Americans by providing access to socially responsible financial products in the workplace. You can learn more about how you can partner with us to help improve your employees' financial well-being at salaryfinance.com. Don't forget to subscribe or follow so you don't miss an episode.